Chapters 4 through 6 of Dr. Ox's Experiment. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Dr. Ox's Experiment by Jules Verne. Chapter 4 In which Dr. Ox reveals himself as a physiologist of the first rank and as an audacious experimentalist. Who then was this personage known by the singular name of Dr. Ox? An original character for certain, but at the same time a bold savant, a physiologist whose works were known and highly esteemed throughout learned Europe, a happy rival of the Davies, the Daltons, the Bostocks, the Menzies, the Godwins, the Vierdorts, of all those noble minds who have placed physiology among the highest of modern sciences. Dr. Ox was a man of medium size and height, aged, but we cannot state his age, any more than his nationality. Besides, it matters little. Let it suffice that he was a strange personage, impetuous and hot-blooded, a regular oddity out of one of Hoffman's volumes, and one who contrasted amusingly enough with the good people of Kikendon. He had an imperturbable confidence both in himself and in his doctrines. Always smiling, walking with head erect and shoulders thrown back in a free and unconstrained manner, with a steady gaze, large open nostrils, a vast mouth which inhaled the air in liberal draughts, his appearance was far from unpleasing. He was full of animation, well proportioned in all parts of his bodily mechanism, with quicksilver in his veins and a most elastic step. He could never stop still in one place, and relieved himself with impetuous words and a superabundance of gesticulations. Was Dr. Ox rich, then, that he should undertake to light a whole town at his expense? Probably, as he permitted himself to indulge in such extravagance, and this is the only answer we can give to this indiscreet question. Dr. Ox had arrived at Kikendon five months before, accompanied by his assistant, who answered to the name of Gideon Eugene, a tall, dried-up, thin man, haughty, but not less vivacious than his master. And next, why had Dr. Ox made the proposition to light the town at his own expense? Why had he, of all the Flemings, selected the peaceable Kikendonians to endow their town with the benefits of an unheard-of system of lighting? Did he not, under this pretext, designed to make some great physiological experiment by operating in anima via? In short, what was this original personage about to attempt? We know not, as Dr. Ox had no confidant except his assistant Eugene, who moreover obeyed him blindly. In appearance at least, Dr. Ox had agreed to light the town, which had much need of it, especially at night, as Commissary Passouf wittily said. Works for producing a lighting gas had accordingly been established. The gasometers were ready for use, and the main pipes, running beneath the street pavements, would soon appear in the form of burners in the public edifices and the private houses of certain friends of progress. Von Tricasse and Nicholas, in their official capacity, and some other worthies, thought they ought to allow this modern light to be introduced into their dwellings. If the reader is not forgotten, it was said during the long conversation of the counselor and the burgomaster, 
that the lighting of the town was to be achieved not by the combustion of common carbureted hydrogen produced by distilling coal, but by the use of more modern and twenty-fold more brilliant gas, oxyhydric gas, produced by mixing hydrogen and oxygen. The doctor, who was an able chemist as well as an ingenious physiologist, knew how to obtain this gas in great quantity and of good quality, not by using manganate of soda, according to the method of Monsieur Tessy de Motet, but by the direct decomposition of slightly acidulated water, by means of a battery made of new elements invented by himself. Thus, there were no costly materials, no platinum, no retorts, no combustibles, no delicate machinery to produce the two gases separately. An electric current was sent through large basins full of water, and the liquid was decomposed into its two constituent parts, oxygen and hydrogen. The oxygen passed off at one end, the hydrogen of double the volume of its late associate at the other. As a necessary precaution, they were collected in separate reservoirs, for their mixture would have produced a frightful explosion if it had become ignited. Thence the pipes were to convey them separately to the various burners, which would be so placed as to prevent all chance of explosion. Thus a remarkably brilliant flame would be obtained, whose light would rival the electric light, which, as everybody knows, is, according to Castleman's experiments, equal to that of 1171 wax candles, not one more nor one less. It was certain that the town of Kikendun would, by this liberal contrivance, gain a splendid lighting. But Dr. Ox and his assistant took little account of this, as will be seen in the sequel. The day after that on which Commissary Passouf had made his noisy entrance into the burgomaster's parlor, Gideon Eugene and Dr. Ox were talking in the laboratory which both occupied in common, on the ground floor of the principal building of the gas works. "'Well, Eugene, well!' cried the doctor, rubbing his hands. "'You saw at my reception yesterday the cold-bloodedness of these worthy Kikendonians. For animation, they are midway between sponges and coral. You saw them disputing and irritating each other by voice and gesture?' They are already metamorphosed, morally and physically. And this is only the beginning. Wait till we treat them to a big dose. Indeed, master, replied Eugene, scratching his sharp nose with the end of his forefinger. The experiment begins well, and if I had not prudently closed the supply tap, I know not what would have happened. You heard Shute, the advocate, and Custos, the doctor, resumed Dr. Ox. The phrase was by no means ill-natured in itself, but in the mouth of a Kikendonian it is worth all the insults which the Homeric heroes hurled at each other before drawing their swords. Ah, these Flemings! You'll see what we shall do some day. We shall make them ungrateful, replied Eugene, in the tone of a man who esteems the human race at its just worth. Bah! said the doctor. What matters it whether they think well or ill of us so long as our experiment succeeds. Besides, returned the assistant, smiling with a malicious expression, is it not to be feared that in producing such an excitement in their respiratory organs we shall somewhat injure the lungs of these good people of Quiquendone? So much the worse for them. It is in the interests of science. 
what would you say if the dogs or frogs refused to lend themselves to the experiments of vivisection? It is probable that if the frogs and dogs were consulted, they would offer some objection, but Dr. Ox imagined that he had stated an unanswerable argument, for he heaved a great sigh of satisfaction. After all, Master, you are right, replied Eugene, as if quite convinced. We could not have hit upon better subjects than these people of Quiquendone for our experiment. We could not, said the doctor, slowly articulating each word. Have you felt the pulse of any of them? Some hundreds. What is the average pulsation you found? Not fifty per minute. See, this is a town where there has not been the shadow of a discussion for a century, where the carmen don't swear, where the coachmen don't insult each other, where horses don't run away, where the dogs don't bite, where the cats don't scratch. A town where the police court has nothing to do from one year's end to another. A town where people do not grow enthusiastic about anything, either about art or business. A town where the gendarmes are a sort of myth, and in which an indictment has not been drawn up for a hundred years. A town, in short, where for three centuries nobody has struck a blow with his fist, or so much as exchanged a slap in the face. You see, Eugene, that this cannot last, and that we must change it all. Perfectly, perfectly, cried the enthusiastic assistant. And have you analyzed the air of this town, master? I have not failed to do so. Seventy-nine parts of azote and twenty-one of oxygen, carbonic acid and steam in a variable quantity. These are the ordinary proportions. Good, doctor, good, replied Eugene. The experiment will be made on a large scale and will be decisive. And if it is decisive, added Dr. Ox triumphantly, we shall reform the world. Chapter 5. In which the Burgomaster and the Counselor pay a visit to Dr. Ox, and what follows. The Counselor Nicholas and the Burgomaster von Tricasse at last knew what it was to have an agitated night. The grave event which had taken place at Dr. Ox's house actually kept them awake. What consequences was this affair destined to bring about? They could not imagine. Would it be necessary for them to come to a decision? Would the municipal authority, whom they represented, be compelled to interfere? Would they be obliged to order arrests to be made, that so great a scandal should not be repeated? All these doubts could not but trouble these soft natures, and on that evening before separating, the two notables had decided to see each other the next day. On the next morning, then, before dinner, the Burgomaster von Tricasse proceeded in person to the Councillor Nicholas's house. He found his friend more calm. He himself had recovered his equanimity. "'Nothing new?' asked von Tricasse. "'Nothing new since yesterday,' replied Nicholas. "'And the doctor, Dominique Custos?' "'I have not heard anything, either of him or of the advocate, André Schut.' After an hour's conversation, which consisted of three remarks which it is needless to repeat, the counselor and the burgomaster had resolved to pay a visit to Dr. Ox, so as to draw from him, without seeming to do so, some details of the affair. Contrary to all their habits, after coming to this decision, the two notables set about putting it into execution forthwith. 
they left the house and directed their steps towards Dr. Ox's laboratory, which was situated outside the town near the Udnard Gate, the gate whose tower threatened to fall in ruins. They did not take each other's arms, but walked side by side with a slow and solemn step, which took them forward but thirteen inches per second. This was indeed the ordinary gait of the Quiquendonians, who had never, within the memory of man, seen anyone run across the streets of their town. From time to time, the two notables would stop at some calm and tranquil crossway, or at the end of a quiet street, to salute the passers-by. "'Good morning, Monsieur the Burgomaster,' said one. "'Good morning, my friend,' responded Van Tricasse. "'Anything new, Monsieur the Counselor?' asked another. "'Nothing new,' answered Nicholas. But by certain agitated motions and questioning looks, it was evident that the altercation of the evening before was known throughout the town. Observing the direction taken by Van Tricasse, the most obtuse Quiquendonians guessed that the burgomaster was on his way to take some important step. The Custos and Schutt affair was talked of everywhere, but the people had not yet come to the point of taking the part of one or the other. The advocate Schutt, never having had occasion to plead in a town where attorneys and bailiffs only existed in tradition, had consequently never lost a suit. As for the doctor Custos, he was an honorable practitioner, who, after the example of his fellow doctors, cured all the illnesses of his patients, except those of which they died, a habit unhappily acquired by all the members of all the faculties in whatever country they may practice. On reaching the Udenard Gate, the counselor and the burgomaster prudently made a short detour, so as not to pass within reach of the tower, in case it should fall. Then they turned and looked at it attentively. I think that it will fall, said Von Tricasse. I think so, too, replied Nicholas. Unless it is propped up, added Von Tricasse. But must it be propped up? That is the question. That is, in fact, the question. Some moments after, they reached the door of the gasworks. Can we see Dr. Ox, they asked. Dr. Ox could always be seen by the first authorities of the town and they were at once introduced into the celebrated physiologist's study. Perhaps the two notables waited for the doctor at least an hour. At least, it is reasonable to suppose so, as the burgomaster, a thing that had never before happened in his life, betrayed a certain amount of impatience, from which his companion was not exempt. Dr. Ox came in at last, and began to excuse himself for having kept them waiting but he had to approve a plan for the gasometer, rectify some of the machinery, but everything was going on well. The pipes intended for the oxygen were already laid. In a few months, the town would be splendidly lighted. The two notables might even now see the orifices of the pipes which were laid on in the laboratory. Then the doctor begged to know to what he was indebted for the honor of this visit. Only to see you, doctor, to see you, replied Van Tricasse. It is long since we have had the pleasure. We go abroad but little in our good town of Quiquendone. We count our steps and measure our walks. We are happy when nothing disturbs the uniformity of our habits. Nicholas looked at his friend. His friend had never said so much at once, at least without taking time 
and giving long intervals between his sentences. It seemed to him that Van Tricasse expressed himself with a certain volubility, which was by no means common with him. Nicholas himself experienced a kind of irresistible desire to talk. As for Dr. Ox, he looked at the burgomaster with sly attention. Van Tricasse, who had never argued until he had snugly ensconced himself in a spacious armchair, had risen to his feet. I know not what nervous excitement, quite foreign to his temperament, had taken possession of him. He did not gesticulate as yet, but this could not be far off. As for the counselor, he rubbed his legs and breathed with slow and long gasps. His look became animated little by little, and he had decided to support, at all hazards if need be, his trusty friend the burgomaster. Von Tricasse got up and took several steps. Then he came back and stood facing the doctor. And in how many months, he asked, in a somewhat emphatic tone, do you say that your work will be finished? In three or four months, Monsieur the Burgomaster, replied Dr. Ox. Three or four months? It's a very long time, said Von Tricasse. Altogether too long, added Nicholas, who, not being able to keep his seat, rose also. This lapse of time is necessary to complete our work, returned Dr. Ox. The workmen, whom we have had to choose in Quiquendone, are not very expeditious. How not expeditious? cried the burgomaster, who seemed to take the remark as personally offensive. No, Monsieur Van Tricasse, replied Dr. Ox obstinately. A French workman would do in a day what it takes ten of your workmen to do. You know, they are regular Flemings. Flemings? cried the counselor, whose fingers closed together. In what sense, sir, do you use that word? Why, in the amiable sense in which everyone uses it, replied Dr. Ox, smiling. Ah, but doctor, said the burgomaster, pacing up and down the room, I don't like these insinuations. The workmen of Quiquendone are as efficient as those of any other town in the world, you must know. And we shall go neither to Paris nor London for our models. As for your project, I beg you to hasten its execution. Our streets have been unpaved for the putting down of your conduit pipes, and it is an hindrance to traffic. Our trade will begin to suffer, and I, being the responsible authority, do not propose to incur reproaches will be but too just. Worthy burgomaster, he spoke of trade, of traffic, and the wonder was that those words, to which he was quite unaccustomed, did not scorch his lips. What could be passing in his mind? Besides, added Nicholas, the town cannot be deprived of light much longer. But, urged Dr. Ox, a town which has been unlighted for eight or nine hundred years... All the more necessary it is, replied the burgomaster, emphasizing his words. Times alter, manners alter, the world advances, and we do not wish to remain behind. We desire our streets to be lighted within a month, or you must pay a large indemnity for each day of delay. And what would happen if amid the darkness some affray should take place? No doubt, cried Nicholas, it requires but a spark to inflame a Fleming. Fleming, flame! Apropos of this, said the burgomaster, interrupting his friend, Commissary Parsouf, our chief of police, reports to us that a discussion took place in your drawing-room last evening, Dr. Ox. 
Was he wrong in declaring that it was a political discussion? By no means, Monsieur the Burgomaster, replied Dr. Ox, who with difficulty repressed a sigh of satisfaction. So an altercation did take place between Dominique Custos and André Schut? Yes, Counselor, but the words which passed were of not of grave import. Not of grave import, cried the Burgomaster. Not of grave import when one man tells another that he does not measure the effect of his words? But of what stuff are you made of, monsieur? Do you not know that in Quiquendone nothing more is needed to bring about extremely disastrous results? But, monsieur, if you or anyone else presumes to speak thus to me, or to me, added Nicholas. As they pronounced these words with a menacing air, the two notables, with arms folded and bristling air, confronted Dr. Ox, ready to do him some violence, if by gesture or even the expression of his eye he manifested any intention of contradicting them. But the doctor did not budge. At all events, monsieur, resumed the burgomaster, I propose to hold you responsible for what passes in your house. I am bound to ensure the tranquility of this town, and I do not wish it to be disturbed. The events of last evening must not be repeated, or I shall do my duty, sir. Do you hear? Then reply, sir. The burgomaster, as he spoke, under the influence of extraordinary excitement, elevated his voice to the pitch of anger. He was furious, the worthy von Tricasse, and might certainly be heard outside. At last, beside himself, and seeing that Dr. Ox did not reply to his challenge, Come, Nicholas, said he, and slamming the door with a violence which shook the house, the burgomaster drew his friend after him. Little by little, when they had taken twenty steps on the road, the worthy notables grew more calm. Their pace slackened, their gait became less feverish. The flush on their faces faded away. From being crimson they became rosy. A quarter of an hour after quitting the gasworks, Van Tricasse said softly to Nicholas, An amiable man, Dr. Ox. It is always a pleasure to see him. Chapter 6 In which Franz Nicholas and Suzel Van Tricasse form certain projects for the future. Our readers know that the burgomaster had a daughter Suzel, but shrewd as they may be, they cannot have divined that the counselor Nicholas had a son, Franz, and had they divined this, nothing could have led them to imagine that Franz was the betrothed lover of Suzel. We will add that these young people were made for each other, and that they loved each other as folks did love at Quiquendone. It must not be thought that young hearts did not beat in this exceptional place. Only they beat with a certain deliberation. There were marriages there, as in every other town in the world. But they took time about it. Betrothed couples, before engaging in these terrible bonds, wished to study each other. And these studies lasted at least ten years, as at college. It was rare that anyone was accepted before this lapse of time. Yes, ten years. The courtships last ten years. And is it, after all, too long, when the being bound for life is in consideration? One studies ten years to become an engineer or physician, an advocate or attorney, and should less time be spent in acquiring the knowledge to make a good husband? Is it not reasonable? And whether due to temperament or reason with them, the Quiquendonians seem to us to be in the right in thus prolonging their courtship. When marriages in other more lively and excitable cities are seen taking place within a few months, 
we must shrug our shoulders and hasten to send our boys to the schools and our daughters to the pensions of Quiquendone. For half a century, but a single marriage was known to have taken place after the lapse of two years only of courtship, and that turned out badly. Franz Nicholas, then, loved Suzel van Tricasse, but quietly, as a man would love when he has ten years before him in which to obtain the beloved object. Once every week, at an hour agreed upon, Franz went to fetch Suzel, and took a walk with her along the banks of the Var. He took good care to carry his fishing tackle, and Suzel never forgot her canvas, on which her pretty hands embroidered the most unlikely flowers. Franz was a young man of twenty-two, whose cheeks betrayed a soft peachy down, and whose voice had scarcely a compass of one octave. As for Suzel, she was blonde and rosy. She was seventeen, and did not dislike fishing. A singular occupation, this, which forces you to struggle craftily with a barbel. But Franz loved it. The pastime was congenial to his temperament. As patient as possible, content to follow with his rather dreamy eye the cork which bobbed on top of the water, he knew how to wait. And when, after sitting for six hours, a modest barbel, taking pity on him, consented at last to be caught, he was happy. But he knew how to control his emotion. On this day the two lovers, one might say the two betrothed, were seated upon the verdant bank. The limpid var murmured a few feet below them. Suzel quietly drew her needle across the canvas. Franz automatically carried his line from left to right, then permitted it to descend the current from right to left. The fish made capricious rings in the water, which crossed each other around the cork, while the hook hung useless near the bottom. From time to time, Franz would say, without raising his eyes, I think I have a bite, Suzel. Do you think so, Franz? replied Suzel, who, abandoning her work for an instant, followed her lover's line with earnest eye. No, returned Franz, I thought I felt a little twitch. I was mistaken. You will have a bite, Franz, replied Suzel in her pure, soft voice. But do not forget to strike at the right moment. You are always a few seconds too late, and the barbel takes advantage to escape. Would you like to take my line, Suzel? Willingly, Franz. Then give me your canvas. We shall see whether I am more adroit with the needle than with the hook. And the young girl took the line with trembling hand, while her swain plied the needle across the stitches of the embroidery. For hours together they thus exchanged soft words, and their hearts palpitated when the cork bobbed on the water. Ah, could they ever forget those charming hours, during which, seated side by side, they listened to the murmurs of the river. The sun was fast approaching the western horizon, and despite the combined skill of Suzel and Franz, there had not been a bite. The barbels had not shown themselves complacent, and seemed to scoff at the two young people, who were too just to bear them malice. We shall be more lucky another time, Franz, said Suzel, as the young angler put up his still virgin hook. Let us hope so, replied Franz. Then walking side by side, they turned their steps toward the house, without exchanging a word, as mute as their shadows, which stretched out before them. Suzel became very, very tall under the oblique rays of the setting sun. Franz appeared very, very thin 
like the long rod which he held in his hand. They reached the burgomaster's house. Green tufts of grass bordered the shining pavement, and no one would have thought of tearing them away, for they deadened the noise made by the passers-by. As they were about to open the door, Franz thought it his duty to say to Suzel, You know, Suzel, the great day is approaching. It is indeed, Franz, replied the young girl with downcast eyes. Yes, said Franz, in five or six years. Good-bye, Franz, said Suzel. Good-bye, Suzel, replied Franz. And after the door had been closed, the young man resumed the way to his father's house with a calm and equal pace. End of chapter 6 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com